This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Man, conference tournaments can be ruthless. Welcome back into Play-By-Play Cast, everybody. My name is Joel Gadet. As always, this is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. Professional development podcast diving into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. You can find us on social media at PXPCast on Twitter. I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. You know, uh, headed to the Mid-American Conference Basketball Tournament this week, and it's really one of my favorite conference tournaments, um, I have to imagine, that are out there, particularly outside the Power 5 levels uh, in college basketball. Because of the fact that it's at an NBA venue, it is uh, Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland, where the Cavaliers play, both the men's and women's tournaments are going on at the same time. Um... And it just has a big, big-time feel to it. A lot of teams, a lot of players, a lot of officials, a lot of fans, a lot of buzz going on in Cleveland. And it's always exciting uh, to be there for a few days and kind of feel that. And you, you really feel March um, kind of settle in and, and get rung in uh, as far as college basketball is concerned. Uh, but it's ruthless, too, sometimes. You know, there have been a couple of runs since I've been at Ball State where the Cardinals on the men's or women's side have had uh, some nice little success. Uh, the women's team got to the finals a couple of years ago. But this year, when I think any Ball State fan would have told you, they felt pretty good going into it. Uh, two games and out. The women's team on Wednesday night, which had, you know, NCAA tournament hopes as potentially an at-large. I mean, it was a bubble team this week, was listed in Charlie Cream's, um, you know, first eight out, basically. Uh, the first four out and the next four out, uh, they, they kind of floated in that in that range. Um, they got shellacked on Wednesday night, so that will end their season, at least, uh, you know, NCAA tournament-wise. They'll, they'll most likely make the NIT and probably make some noise there. Um, and the men, on Thursday night, uh, or Thursday afternoon, got beat by the Kent State Golden Flashes. So, the Cardinals, two games and out. And that is one of the things that comes with the territory of being a uh, voice of a team. And we'll get into this a little bit on today's episode of the podcast, which is kind of why I wanted to start here. Uh, Jim Donovan is our guest. He is the longtime voice of the Cleveland Browns. And he will talk on today's episode about the importance in his career of wanting to be the voice of a team. Uh, It just, you know, ever since I've been at Ball State, uh, the Cardinals in the major sports have never gotten over that championship hump. Uh, you know, I've won softball and tennis and a couple of their Mac titles since I've been there. Um, but football got into a couple of bowl games, uh, had a field goal blocked to send one to overtime. My second year here, never gotten over that hump. Um, men's basketball have had some big wins, you know, obviously beat Notre Dame back in the fall, which was awesome. Uh, but have not got over that championship hump. 
Um, women's basketball has not gotten over that championship hub. Um, baseball, I also call the baseball games here. Got to the championship game my first year, and then two years after that, uh, my first year was their, their best chance. But again, just couldn't get over that hump. And, you know, as the voice of a team, you kind of wear it on your sleeve because you're invested more than being a network guy or or a you know a broadcaster that's going to drop in and call the game from an impartial standpoint you know when you're the team voice you feel it and when the team wins you love it and when the team loses it hurts and uh, that's one of the you know tough things but also exciting things about being the voice of an institution uh, Jim Donovan always wanted that in his career and uh, eventually did get it when he became the voice of the Cleveland Browns when they returned to the NFL in 1999. But he's done a ton of play-by-play in his career, including the Olympics, and he also spent a decade uh, with NBC calling NFL games on national television. And on top of that, Jim Donovan is also a local television personality in Cleveland as well. So he has a lot of different viewpoints on um, angles in this industry, but He is, I think, to a lot of people, first and foremost, the voice of the Cleveland Browns, and that is something he loves because he is the voice of a team and the voice of a very passionate fan base, and he can celebrate with them, or a lot more recently, you kind of wear it on your sleeve with them as well. So with that laid as the foreground, Jim Donovan is our guest this week. While I was in Cleveland for the Mid-American Conference Tournament, had the chance to go to uh, his office at WKYC, the NBC affiliate, and sit down for this conversation. Uh, Quick side note, I walked there because KYC is a little less than a mile away from Quicken Loans Arena. Um, I immediately regretted that decision because it was snowing. And uh, WKYC is right off the lake (laughs) in in Cleveland. I didn't realize that at the time, Uh, but it it, uh, was snowy, cold, and windy, and uh, I felt like I was walking through a bomb cyclone. But I made it, and we did this interview with uh, Jim Donovan, the voice of the Cleveland Browns, here on Play by Play Cast. Well, I grew up in Boston, and um, they had great teams, and each team had great announcers, really great play-by-play announcers. And it was at a time when, now, you know, it was at a, I sound like an old man, it was at a time when not every game was on television. In fact, very few were on television. So your link to the Celtics, the Bruins, the Red Sox, the Patriots, um, they, they became, uh, that link was whoever was doing the games. And they, in, in each sport, it was a guy that was just fantastic. And so I loved all the teams, I loved the sports, and I loved all the play-by-play announcers. And when I would go to the Boston Garden or go to Fenway Park or, you know, um, wherever the Patriots were playing at that time, and it was a lot of different places um, because they were kind of the ugly stepchild in the Boston sports scene at that time when I was growing up. But wherever I would go, I would always just be fascinated looking up into this little crow's nest at Boston Garden and, and seeing Fred Cusick or Bob Wilson, who were the voices of the Bruins, Johnny Most, who was just the charismatic voice of the Celtics. And the Red Sox had great announcers. They had Ken Coleman, they had Kirk Gowdy, they had Ned Martin. Uh, and Patriots had great announcers, Bob Starr and Gil Santos. So I would, uh, I would just look up there and just be mesmerized by them. And then um, when I... One Christmas, I asked my parents if I could get a tape recorder, 
and they gave me a tape recorder. My dad had season tickets to the Bruins games, and it was right in the height of the Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, Jerry Cheever's era. And the Bruins were, that was like two slabs of gold to have two season tickets to the Bruins. And I asked him if I could take the tape recorder with me to the games. And we sat right up in the, in the balcony, right off to the left of one of the goals, section 77, row F, seat 12 and 13. And I was 13 on the aisle. And I would bring my tape recorder to the game, and I would call the game. And then I would send the tapes out to those sportscasters in Boston and ask for feedback. And so I was just bitten by the bug at How that time. How old were you at that point, too? I think I was only 12, oh, wow. 13, okay. maybe 13, 14. I still have the tapes. Um, what would you hear back as a 12-year-old saying, here's my stuff? <laughs> they would say, hey, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they were very good, and they were very detailed. Um, you know. And as I got older then, and, and I went to high school, and then it came time to make a selection of where I wanted to go to college, um, you know, they would help me with that, too, those guys. They were all very, very helpful. I mean, you know, they may pick up the phone and call you, or they would write you a letter. And uh, it was thrilling when you'd go to the mailbox and you'd see WBZ Radio 1030 uh, on the on the envelope. And, and you'd you'd open it up, and, and they would go through things. Hey, you might want to try and do this. You, you know, you can't call every play. You might have to back off a little bit on something. You know, your pace, watch your pace on things. And that, that's how I really did it. Nobody else finds this amusing. I know my mother will at least because I laughed when I read that anecdote in a newspaper article um, last night because one of the first things I did when I wanted to get into play-by-play, I went to a Michigan-Michigan State hockey game as a fan and showed up with a tape recorder and started doing the game. And, like, my mother always goes back to, like, that was when it all started. Uh, What did the people around you think (laughs) while you were doing that? Um, They, uh, at first, I mean, everybody (laughs) was, like, looking at me. And, uh, no, I didn't do it that loud. Okay. Okay, I mean, I, I was at an audible level. And, of course, it was so exciting in there. Uh, at the Garden when the Bruins were playing that, I mean, even if you were talking, I think you were drowned out by, by a lot of the, the crowd noise anyway. But here, you know, actually, I, I take it a step back. When I, when I first got the tape recorder, I would turn the television volume down and try and call the game there. But then I kept saying to myself, I wonder what it would be like to play with the crowd. You know, can you be ahead of the crowd? What's it going to be like when there's a goal? Are you, you know, are you going to be on time with the call? So I, that's the thing that fascinated me, and that's why I took the tape recorder to the game. But people then would come up to me in between periods, uh, and they would say, hey, can you play back the goal? <laughs> so I'd hit the, I'd hit the rewind. I would go to the games, and I would be armed with four size D batteries and two C90 cassette tapes. That would get me through. That was if that would be the ultimate birthday gift to give to me was to give me cassette tapes and batteries so that I could go to the game and do the game. And yeah, nowadays it's easy. You just go find the sound wave and go. There was the gold that you had. Literally rewind and yeah. find it and yeah, hope yeah. that you were. Yeah, I would hear myself going, you know, and rewind, and then I'd play the goal, and people would, you know, come around and listen to the goal, and pretty soon I think they knew that, uh, hey, that's the kid up in section 77 that's doing the games. So uh, it, they were all very nice. They were all uh, very, you know, crazy their necks at first, but then they kind of thought it was pretty cool. You've obviously developed relationships with all those guys as you're sending tapes uh, yeah. to them at a very young age, so I'm sure you and Gil Santos knew oh, of each other, yeah. at least. Um, but what was it like, the first Patriots game that you broadcast as the voice of the Browns, to here's this guy that you looked up to that was a mentor to you from a very young age, and all of a sudden... You're doing the same game for opposing networks. Yeah, I I can remember when I got the Browns radio job and there was a writer from Boston that called me up um, and said, hey, you know, 
the, he knew that I was from Boston. And he, I had gotten to know him because I had done college hockey uh, at Boston University, which was big at BU. I mean, BU was really big at hockey, especially at that time. And so he, he had been covering college hockey for the Globe. And he, you know, he saw my name, and, and he got in touch with me. And I remember saying, he, you know, hey, I used to listen to Gil Santos do the games. And that's where I kind of picked up a little bit of the style of football that I did. Um, and I can remember I would get up on Monday mornings to get ready to go to school, and the Patriots had played on Sunday, and Gil Santos was doing drive morning drive sports on WBZ. And everybody listened to WBZ in the morning during their morning drive show, and he would replay his calls from the day before, and I just thought that was fantastic. So I, I was all in on him. And so he quoted me in the article that Gil Santos was really a, a big influence in me, especially in football. And sure enough, I got a letter back from Gil Santos right away saying, hey, thank you very, very much. But I do remember, um, you know, the first game, it was here in Cleveland, and the Patriots came into town, and he came, he's in the booth right next to me, and he came right in, and we sat and we talked, and it was great. I mean, it was great. I mean, Gil Santos was a phenomenal radio play-by-play uh, -play announcer in football. I mean, just phenomenal. A great voice. He had a great delivery, great descriptive style of play. And um, here's the thing about him. He suffered a lot of years with bad Patriots teams and then went out on top. And I am suffering through a lot of bad years <laughs> with the Cleveland Browns. And I'm hoping that it will turn and I'll be like Gil and go out on top. You hear me, point. God? Please. Yeah, really. Come on. Give me a break. But it was really neat. He was a great guy. He really was. And he was a real help. There's obviously a lot of time between there and Cleveland, but if I can jump ahead to uh, how you kind of became associated with Cleveland, it was interesting um, to me because obviously the Browns did not come first for you. Right. Uh, you were you were here at WKYC right. uh, doing TV first, and I thought it was interesting when I read the line that said you were worried about taking the TV route because it ultimately, not that you don't enjoy this, but ultimately you wanted to do play-by-play, -play and this was not that. Right. Um, what was that decision like for you? Uh, and how did it eventually work out? So I was up in Burlington, Vermont, and I was doing um, a lot of fun things. I was, um, I was doing um, the University of Vermont hockey games on radio, and I was doing some University of Vermont uh, basketball games on radio, and I was doing minor league baseball. The Cincinnati Reds had their double-A team up there. So I was doing a lot of play-by-play, lot of -play, and I was doing you know, the typical you know, radio routine, morning sports, but I dab just dabbled in television. I mean, just stuck my toe in the water. And it was just to kind of pay the cable bill, really. It really was. Um, and I would just go over. There was a television station up there, an ABC station that was getting into news. And they said, would you come over and just read the sports at night? And I went, yeah, sure. And I went over and did it. But I was all radio. I really was. And really thought that if I was going to get a break, I thought that I would get a minor league hockey job, which would hopefully lead to an NHL job. Now, up in Vermont, that time there wasn't a lot of high school football and the University of Vermont did not have football they had abandoned their program so lo and behold from the television tape I ended up uh, catching the eye of, a, of an agent who represented broadcasting talent and he called me up and said would you mind if I sent your tape around and I went yeah sure go ahead and I got the job here in Cleveland with very little television experience, but it was a really difficult decision. And I said I would take the job. And I drove here, it was a 10 hour drive from Burlington to come here, and I was gonna be the weekend sportscaster. And I get here, 
and I had buyer's remorse right away. I mean, I called back to Vermont and said, have you filled my job yet? You know, I didn't, I was very, very worried about it because it, there was no promise I would ever get back to play-by-play, and I was just kind of wondering if I took the job just for income, and I had put in, you know, I had put in a sufficient amount of time in Minnesota and in Vermont, staying on this road of trying to get a play-by-play job and just get better at it. And maybe I was just putting the brakes on too early. So I really was concerned about that. Yeah. Um, when you got to Cleveland, though, and once you're here, uh, how did this grow on you? How did you grow into it? What made you come to love that you made the right decision? Well, uh, first of all, when I got here, um, this, the television station at the time was owned by NBC. So that was a big plus, I have to tell you. Um, and, and that helped me a great deal. Well, and did that eventually lead to NFL on NBC? That's, that's exactly how it happened. And the television station at the time when I got here also had the preseason rights to the Cleveland Browns games. So when, you know, I, had ex- I also told them, you know, I'd really like to do play-by-play. Could I try and pick up some radio play-by-play on the side? And uh, they said, well, as long as it fits into your television schedule, that would be okay. But that was going to be difficult to shoehorn in. So they said, why don't you join us on the uh, preseason football game? So I was like, the first year that I did it, I was like the preseason, I was the pregame host, halftime show guy, you know, wrap up the game, uh, that, the third man in the booth. And, you know, and I did that. And it was great, though. I mean, I had gone from broadcasting college hockey and now suddenly I'm sitting in an NFL booth with the Cleveland Browns. The next year was a big break for me because then they said, why don't you do the play-by-play of the games? And from that, NBC saw one of my tapes. And at that time, if they took an interest in you, they gave you a two-game tryout to join them and, and see if you could do regional games. And so I, the next year I got a two-game tryout with them, and then that blossomed into – like 11 years of doing regional games for them. So th- that's how Cleveland kind of grew on me at that time. But I have to tell you, it was th- at that time, too, the Browns were great. They were really good. And it was Kozar and, you know, they, they, and Marty Schottenheimer was the coach, and they were playing those epic games against the Broncos. And I just, as much as I loved doing the NFL games on NBC and it was fun, I was away from Cleveland every Sunday. Very rarely would I get a Browns game. And I just kept saying, I would really like to be the voice of a team, you know. And so that, that, was, the, that was the missing piece for me at that time. And, and then eventually the, it came true that I would get that. But, but really, that's, that's how it all happened. Tell me about the two-game tryout and, and what it's like. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if pressure is the right word. But when they say, listen, we're going to put you on, you know, basically right. national television, regional, regional and national television. Uh, here's two games. Don't screw it up. Uh, what was that process like for you? Well, it was, um, you know, they, they bring you to a, a camp, almost like a, a, a three-day seminar, like a training camp, a boot camp in the summer, and probably just as teams are getting set to open up their training camps. And everybody's there. Okay, so I I fly into New York, and I know at some point I'm going to get the two games, but they don't promise when you're going to get them. I mean, they don't tell you. You're going to get it on September 14th. I mean, they'll just call you and say, hey, this week you're going to get a game, and you don't know when it's going to be. 
So you have to, you have to study well in advance yeah, so that yeah. you know you're on your yeah. Right. So I but I go to the seminar and suddenly I'm in the room and there's Dick Enberg and Marv Albert and Bob Costas and uh, Paul McGuire and all you know they're all there and Merlin Olson at the time and and all of these guys that were there and you're sitting in the room with them and they're going over this is how we're going to do the games this is how we you know this is how we sign a game on this is this is what we do uh, you know in uh, the way we like to see the games done. This is the NBC style. So, I mean, I was I was soaking it up. But I was waiting for the call to come. And then finally, it was the year that the t- uh, there was a strike in the NFL, and they had replacement players playing. And I, you know, NBC at one point during that strike, I think they were doing like Canadian Football League games. And then finally, when they when they did the replacement players, they got back to doing games. And then finally, the strike ended. And that's the first week that I got a game. And it was the Miami Dolphins playing the Buffalo Bills, and my partner was Paul McGuire. And he was just fantastic. Funny, fantastic. He was just great. I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything better. And, um, you know, so you're nervous. I think I had both teams memorized backwards and forwards. I mean, really, backwards. Every night I would have someone quizzing me on, on, you know, who's 69, you know, and all that. And um, so I did that, and I went down there, and it was a great game. I mean, great game, back and forth, both teams scoring. You know, Marino's playing for the Dolphins. Jim Kelly is really coming of age, playing for the Bills. Sure enough, the game goes goes down the wire, and suddenly the game is is scooped up by the entire network. You know how they – if there's a game that's a blowout, they'll say, well, it's obvious this game's over. Now we're going to take you to Miami and Buffalo. And they come in your ear and they say, okay, we have the whole network now. And this is my first game. And it was, and Buffalo ends up tying the game up in the last second. They go into overtime, and they end up winning the game in overtime down in Miami. And it was, it was really kind of the evolution of Marv Levy and the Bills at that time. And so now, I mean, I was ecstatic. And everybody kept telling me you did really great. And then they had, they had a coach. You have a coach at NBC at the time. And it was Marty Glickman, the really famous yeah. Giants, Jets. Uh-huh. Great, great guy. So he would critique your game on Tuesday morning. You would get a call at 10 o'clock in the morning. I feel like this was probably very straightforward. He was very, yeah. <laughs> and he was fantastic. And he told, you know, he got the, I got the call and he said, hey, as far as first games go, you did a great job. And so I ended up, uh, that was my first game. I got the next game, and then I got games after that, which meant that you know I, I probably had passed the test. I was going to ask you actually. I'm glad you brought Marty Glickman up there because, um, especially when you get to like the network level, I feel like one of the big questions people have is, well, what does this person look for? What does that coordinating producer look for? Yeah. What does this network look for? Right. What is good to this person? That person, you know, what's good for NBC is not necessarily good for CBS and vice versa. Um, what was what was good at NBC? What did they want from you, and what kind of classified as, like, this is, this is what we want a broadcast to sound like from our announcers? Well, they wanted you um, – there was a huge shift early in my years there, and um, they went from um, Michael Weissman, who was really a baseball guy. Huh. Michael Weissman was kind of the game of the week. 
you know, the Saturday afternoon game of the week, um, and NBC had the World Series and all that. So he was he was overseeing football, but really baseball was his hot button. Um, so he kind of left it up to the individual game producers. So it would vary, and I, I was at a point where I wasn't on a permanent team. So I would have you produce the game one week, and then I'd have another guy produce the game the next week. And so you had to really on the fly learn what they wanted, how they wanted you to do things. The following year, though, there was a huge shift, and they brought a guy over from CBS by the name of Terry O'Neill. And Terry O'Neill was famous for putting together big-time broadcast teams. He put uh, Summerall and Madden together. Um, he, um, you know, he put together, and he had a definite way of how he wanted you to do the games. So the days of flying in on Saturdays to do a game on Sunday ended and NBC, and now you would go in on Friday morning. You had to be in on the first flight to wherever the game was being played. You met with the home team all day Friday and Saturday morning. Then the visiting team would come in Saturday. You met with, and I mean, these meetings would go on. So you would have, suddenly it shifted to you're going to meet with more than just the head coach. You're going to meet with 10 players, both coordinators, the head coach for both teams. And then there was so then you would meet with the visiting team when they would come in, typically at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And then there was another broadcast meeting you'd go over. Here's how the game's gonna you know, you'd have to write the tease and they would have the play by play guy write the tease. And so you'd work with the producer on how that how that had to be done. And you'd record the tease the next morning um, in the booth once you got there. And then they would go over the whole broadcast procedure. He was Terry O'Neill was a great suddenly he was a great guy of he wanted you to say, you know, Yesterday, when, when we were sitting with Dan Marino, he was saying, hey, he was, you know, on Tuesdays he was finding that, you know, he, he, was, he had a dead arm. And so he would take, you know, he, Wednesday he would come out and just hope that that, you know, his arm had a lot more life in it, you know. And he, they wanted you to, you know, take out little tidbits from the conversations that you had with the players or the coaches and, and tell stories in the game. And, he, you know, you could never do – you could never do enough of them in the game. You know, well, we were at practice yesterday, and I noticed that, you know, and he loved that. So there was a real style change at NBC once Terry O'Neill got in there. Very strict, a um, lot of preparation. But I have to tell you, as tough as it was, I think I still use a lot of those things today. How do you not over-prepare yeah. in a situation like that? Because, and I, some, sometimes I feel like there is no such thing as that, but at the same token, I know for myself there are times where I've gone into a game and been like, I have so much information and now I don't know what to do with it and how to cogently put it forward. Um, when you're spending that much time with guys, like how did you best organize yourself to say, this is the direction we're going with all of that? Well, that's where a guy like, um, you know, the coaching, or and you see, Marty Glickman then was kind of phased out, and it was Terry O'Neill himself <laughs> that would call you on Tuesday. Um, and he would tell, you know, he would say, he would go through the game with you, and he'd have notes on every game, and he would say, hey, listen, you know, you really tried to squeeze something in here. And I think that's what happens. That's what you're alluding to. And that's a very, very easy thing to fall victim to is that you have so much that you know you forget about the game and you're worried more about the stories yeah. than you are about the game and sometimes you know you it I think it just comes from experience and all of a sudden you just get a feel of when there's too much and that's probably where a, a good guy in the truck a producer has good ears and it says you know hey might this might be a good time 
you know, to talk about, you know, what Jim Kelly was talking about, getting these new receivers or something like that, or running the, you know, the no huddle offense, you know, because it was at the birth time of that for the Bills. This might be a good time to, to, to squeeze that in right now, or don't do that right now. We'll do it, uh, you know, we're going to get you a shot. We'll set it up. Um, you know, we'll do it properly. We'll come back from commercial. We'll show him on the bench, you know, get into the story there and then get out of it. So I think that, um, you know, I, you know I, I would probably challenge anybody to, to go in and have the right read on that situation because you just, it's coming gushing out, you know, and you just have to filter. You have to have a filter on yeah. it. And then, that, then I think you can hear it if you're doing too much of it, you know. You said you uh, eventually did want to be a team guy, though, yeah. and you wanted that opportunity. So as great as doing network stuff was for the more than a decade that you were there, you did get a chance to be the voice of the Cleveland Browns. And what I thought was amazing was um, when they left, there was the plan for them to come back. Right. Um, and the fact that you basically for three years kind of had your own personal ball set in motion to say, I'm going to set myself up to get this job. Right. Um, how did you do that and, and how did you make it work out? So what I did was, um, <clears throat> you know, they left. And as soon as they left, weeks, as, as sad as it was, but it wasn't a long time after they, you know, the season ended and they left and they went to Baltimore, but that the NFL said, okay, in three years, you'll have a team back. So right away, I said to myself, okay, three years from now, there's going to be a whole process of, you know, they're going to find out, you know, who's going to be doing the games. You know, the, our, our radio station is going to be picked, an announcer is going to be picked, an analyst is going to be picked, whatever. Um, how do I separate myself and not just say, well, you know, I did nine years of games on NBC. I should get the job, right? Um, because there'll be a lot of factors. And believe me, there were. You know, you could write a book on how, how the, the selection of the new voice of the Cleveland Browns went down. So what I did was I kind I, I was still doing some games on NBC, but then NBC lost the contract, the AFC contract. And so they were out of football, but they had Notre Dame. Remember, they had the Notre Dame contract. So my friends at NBC would send me the Notre Dame game tapes, the broadcast tapes. And I would take it to a studio here in Cleveland, and they would strip off the announcer, you know, that, that channel, and I would call the game, okay. you know, I would, you know, get the lineup. I'd get the flip card from Notre Dame of what that game was. And I would call the game. And I did it for a lot of times. And then I just went to local colleges around the area here. You know, I didn't go to Ohio State. I mean, so I'd, I'd go to Baldwin-Wallace or, or I'd go to Akron or Kent or someplace like that and see, say to them, hey, listen, do you have a spot in the press box if I could just go in? And I went back to, you know, doing the games into a tape recorder. And that's how I did it. That's, I mean, for a lot of people, I feel like that would that would seem crazy to them just because, like, here's this guy who's humbling himself to this point, but yeah. he's doing it with a purpose. Yeah. Um, well, what's it like when you're when you're in those situations? <laughs> well, the other thing, too, was, um, you know, I had to get back to doing a radio call. Yeah. You know, that that was important uh, because that was the curveball. You know, at least verbally, people were using against me. They were saying, well, you know, I know you did football, but you did it on TV. That's very different than doing it on the radio. And they're correct. But I was, you know, smart enough to realize that I had to be different on the radio. And I, I really welcomed that more. I would say this, that when you were doing the games at NBC, the analyst was the star. 
You know, the, the game is built around the analyst. I mean, they have all these replays and telestrators and drawings on the screen, and, and that's for the analyst. I mean, you're, you're kind of getting him to the right spot, and you're filling in the blanks. Radio, much different, right? Because, uh, you know, you're, you're the guy, and, and I welcomed that. I really wanted to do that. So um, it, it, was, it was humbling uh, only in the sense that, um, you know, you're, you're back to – yeah, you're, you're, I mean, I can remember doing football games at St. Cloud, Minnesota, and climbing up a pole to get into the press box, and you're kind of back to that a little yeah. bit. Um, but it, like you, I was, I had my eyes, I was very focused on what I wanted to do, and at least mechanically, and aesthetically, I wanted to be ready because I knew there were going to be a lot of people sure. that wanted in on it. I mean, everybody wanted in on it. So, um, you know, I just didn't think you were going to get it because you wore a coat to the interview and it had, it had the NBC peacock on it, you know, that they would give you for when the weather got cold. Um, you had to be good, you know, you really did. And, and that's how I had to win it. And, and that's, that's pretty much what I set myself up to do. I asked you this for television. Um, let me ask you it for radio now as well. On that note, um, what's good for football to you on radio? When you listen to a football game, um, yeah. What do you want to hear, and, and what do you want to convey when you do it? Well, I, I'm gonna. I, I really think that this is very, very important. I think when you're doing football on the radio, you have to do radio. I don't think you can do TV football on the radio. And I sometimes find that there are guys that do that, you know. And you're not giving me enough when I'm driving along listening to the game. Sure. I mean, really. I mean, I want to know what the formation is. I want to know down, you know, the mechanics, down, distance, you know, how much time, where's the ball, um, you know. But then I want to know what, it, you know, because if you're a real good football fan, if you're a really into it, you want to know what formation they're in. Um, was there a change up until the snap? And, and then I think that you have to find kind of a cadence or a rhythm, and people get used to, used to your cadence and your rhythm. And, and I think you have to find that flow so that's, that's how I call it. I mean, I kind of, um, do I smother it? Probably a little bit, but um, I think that, uh, I think that, you know how the old line of you have to paint the picture? I mean, I'm really into that. I, I am really into painting the picture. I, I go back to the old, you probably remember this, when, when they talk about people doing, um, you know, sports on the radio, that you go back to the old way of saying, there are two people driving in the car, they wanted to go to the game that day, but something happened. They couldn't go to the game that day. They had to go Christmas shopping. It was the only day they could get to the mall. And they're driving along, and you're doing the game for them. Yeah. And that's, that's what I like. And I, I really I listen to everybody, you know, every, you know, everybody, whether it's college or, or in the NFL, and, and pick up little traits and, and compare what I do to what they do. And it's just an ongoing thing. And plus, every game... It's, it's like a pitcher in baseball. You, you go in, you'd like to pitch the perfect game. Yeah. You know, it's very difficult to do, and maybe it's undoable to, to call the perfect game. But I think you should go in trying to do that. Do you have any tricks uh, that help you in that? Uh, and it could be with anything. I mean, I'll, I'll ask that really vaguely, just in terms of, I don't know, reminding yourself, uh, even if it's like time and score on a long drive when there's no huddle and you don't have time to get to it, or uh, identifying guys quickly because sometimes you can't tell when it's down right. the field, or you know trying to recognize something when you see a formation or you see a trick play, and and just being able to I don't know, things that are, are triggers for you that you think help make you more successful. I get myself into a rhythm 
um, you know, when the team is up coming up to the line of scrimmage. And it's for me, and I think it is for the listener. And, and that is, um, there are just certain bullet points, you know. You know, what's the down? What's the distance? You know, where's the play clock? I mean, if I get a feel that the play is taking a long time, I want to make sure that, you know, uh, I get the play clock in. You know, unfortunately, the Browns run that play clock down an awful lot uh, as they try to get lined up. But it, I think that's important. So there's a checklist. I mean, I, and again, I think people get comfortable with your checklist, but the most important person that's comfortable with it is me. And, and that is I really like to set the formation. I love doing it. Um, I love bringing the play right up to the snap. You know, if there's, if there's motion, um, you know, if, there's, if I see a blitz, you know, but the other thing I, I, I think that I have to do and and I think I do it pretty well is that and I learned it at NBC. Um, you got to make your partner good. OK. And and you, I don't try to out football the football guy. You know, so the analyst has played the game and, and, you know, typically they play at a very high level and they know the game. And that's why they're sitting beside you. And you got to leave him room to be able to do his thing. And then I only ask him, leave me room to do my thing, and we're going to be great. And, but you, you also want to be able to um, you know, make it you know, so, so comfortable for everybody and comfortable for your partner. And Marv Albert was a really, and is a great guy for doing that. He makes his partners really become almost cult heroes. Mike Fratello is the czar of the telestrator. I mean, when he was doing the Knicks and the Rangers on radio in New York, I mean, his partners, you know, were, were really characters made by him. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and I try, I really noticed that. And so, you know, at, at NBC, they wanted you to do that because those were the stars of the show. And in radio, too, the same thing. Even though you're with the same guy every week, I think people, it's like a comfortable pair of shoes yeah. that when people listen to the two of you, it, it's a, you know, they realize these are two guys just sitting really having a, a, you know, a descriptive conversation on Sunday afternoon. Do you lead into them as much as you can, or do you just try to get out and leave them space to do their thing? Um, I, you know, if I think that there's a point that I want them to get into, I definitely lead into. But as soon as the play is over, they and, you know, I have sufficiently identified, you know, what happened and who did it and who didn't do it. Um, you know, you know, if I if I think that there's a, a point that needs to be made, I'll lead him into it. But I think that once again, you know, when you've worked with the same person for a long period of time and I've worked with my partner, Doug Deacon, for 19 years now, um, we pretty much know, you know, and, and that that's fun. That's really fun. We have a good time together. And um, yeah, so it, it swings both ways. I have a couple more things for you, and then I know I got to let you get back to work. Um, but uh we mentioned this off the top with, you know, with Gil Santos, God willing that you've been through some tough years and maybe you'll get a chance to go out on top at, right. at some point here with the Cleveland Browns. Um, what's it like? Uh, how do you deal with broadcasting one win in two years and, and continuing to make that interesting and exciting and draw people in and give them a reason to listen when the end result's not going to be what you want it to be? Yeah, I go back to 1999, uh, really, um, and, and I fell... Um, kind of victim to what everybody around Cleveland fell victim to. Everybody around here thought that three years away, and even though it was a true expansion team, and I mean in the highest you know, form of the definition of expansion team, it, it was a true expansion team when it came back, 
that it was not just going to be, hey, we're going to pick up where we left off when they left town, which was a pretty competitive team. In 94, you know, they went to the playoffs. 95, they were really a good team, but because of the move, you know, and, and everything that became so chaotic here, I mean, no team could function in that type of atmosphere. But we all thought, oh, well, I mean, we don't know who the heck these guys are, but they're going to put on an orange helmet. They're going to have 72,000 people screaming for them and barking for them, as is the case in Cleveland, and we'll be good. And, man, I'll tell you what, it was a punch in the nose, uh, a punch of reality that it was going to struggle. And I have to tell you, the first couple of years, it really wore me down because they only won uh, the first year when they came back, they won two games. And the next year, they only won three games. Um, and, and then I said, you know, I think you're taking this too – I said to myself, I think you're taking this too personal. You still have to just go in and do the games. And the result takes care of itself. And, you know, you, you'd love to see them win, but uh, right now they're not built to win. And, and I, so there was a midpoint, maybe five or six years into it, that I just – didn't cop an attitude that's kind of a you know kind of a, a harsh way to say it but I just came in with a different attitude that I was going to go in and just do a really good job on the games and let the game take care of itself you can't hide it I mean you know if they play well they play well and if they don't you know it's it's not a problem and believe me the Browns had no control over anything that I would say or restrictions or Monday morning meetings about hey you know you were a little rough on us yesterday uh, they were very good about that and um, so the, but the last two years have been a test. I mean, it's been, it's been incredible. I think what you do is you just go in and you have to take a look at the game. And I'm not saying you, you, you just have to call it straight and, and you have to be very honest about it. And the team has been totally stripped down to try and do a massive rebuild. And in doing that, you're going to probably have an awful lot of players, young players on the team. Young players make mistakes. Young players don't win games in the fourth quarter where veteran teams do win games. And this is what's happened here. Um, but it has been it, it has been tough. I have I never I thought we were past the one win, no wins, uh, three win seasons. I really did. I thought that we were on the cusp of being past you know that and and occasionally being you know taking a run at a at a wild card spot or or a division you know a battle for the division deep into December, but we've gone backwards and and, and you know there's a plan here to do that now whether or not that's going to succeed we'll have to let it play out on the field, but I wouldn't say uh, because I readjusted my attitude like six or seven years into it, yeah. um, you know I I just go in really to do the game. And, and I think people appreciate that. Well, I think they do. I think that's the interesting thing, too. From And, you know, we went through this at Ball State. I, the last eight games of the year I just called this past season were all legitimately 50 to 60-point blowouts. Um, and there's a point in that game where you're like, what, what am I supposed to right. do? But if you take the attitude of, like, literally just call the game, and we were in a sim similar situation. Right. It was stripped down, young kids, a lot of freshmen playing. They make mistakes, they get beat. And you call it for what it is. Uh, and you explain the fact that, well, listen, Bryce Cosby's a rookie. He right. got beat. This is why he got beat. This is where he'll get better, and let's appreciate the great offense on the other side and how they pulled that off. Yeah. Probably makes it a little bit easier than just kind of sulking and throwing your hands up and going, like, what am I watching? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, so, you know, I, I have to tell you, I loved watching Deshaun Kaiser 
at Notre Dame. I really do. I, you know, I'm an Irish Catholic kid from Boston. You know, that was your team, you know. And I loved watching him at Notre Dame. So when he got here, I was very, very excited. I'm going, wow, this is really cool. Um, you know, because he did some really good things there. You know, more in the first year that he played than in the second year that he played. But, you know, I thought he maybe got yanked in and out of the lineup by Brian Kelly a little bit in his second year. But it would all smooth out. But in no way did I think he was going to be the starting quarterback for the Cleveland Browns on opening day against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So you just have to say to yourself, um, you know, there might be a Cinderella story here, but probably not. You know, rookie quarterbacks starting right away, you know, they go through a process that at times is very, very difficult to go through. And that's with a decent team. This was a young team across the board, everywhere. So this was going to be a struggle. Um, so I had kind of prepped myself that that was going to happen. But you're right. I mean, you, you know, um, you beg for a competitive game every Sunday. Um, the, the tough part for me, and I'm sure you probably go through this when, you know, your, your team is losing, you know, eight games in a row. Um, you, the, the hard part for me is seeing the emptiness of the stadium. Yeah. That's tough, you know, because Sundays here in this area are still big football Sundays. I mean, you know, I, I don't know that Cleveland's a great basketball town. It is a great LeBron town. You know, the Indians, you know, when they're good, they're loved. If they're not good, you know, the, you know, you go to Dollar Dog Night and that's about it. But the Browns are precious, you know, whether they're, you know, I mean, people, you know, even though they're 1-31 in 31 in the last two years, people are, if you listen to a sports talk show around town today, okay, as you and I sit here, Everyone's, they're not talking about will the, will the Cavs beat the Nuggets tonight. They're saying, what are they going to do with that first pick? And then what are they going to do with the number four pick? And are they going to take Saquon Barkley? Are they locked into a quarterback? What are they going to do in free agency with all of that money? And that's what it's all about. So to see the stadium empty, and I get it, you know, it's, it's, it's 10 degrees down there. And it's December. And, you know, they're not going to win at that point. And it's, it's a tough thing to go watch. It will be great to see the place full again and to see people really looking forward to Sundays again because it truly is a great football area. Let me uh, end on this note. I'll bring it back home uh, with the Browns and your job here at WKYC. Right. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic, uh, and I, you know, we've had some people on this uh, podcast that have done the you know radio talk show voice of a team. Te- um, uh, Grant Napier in uh, in Sacramento does that. Uh, I think you're the first guy that I've talked to, though, that is also a local TV personality. Right. How do you balance those two things of being the voice of a team while simultaneously covering that team for one of the TV stations in town? Well, I tell you, it it, um, it, it is tricky, but it's never been trickier than this past year. And it wasn't really about the record. It wasn't the fact that they didn't win a game. But it was about the fact that the owner of the team his company, Pilot Flying J, you know, was involved in a serious federal, you know, trial for fraudulent, uh, you know, um, you know, paying off, you know, shortchanging companies on paying off on rebates. And that was tricky because suddenly, you know, you're reporting on this trial in Tennessee. And if the trial goes haywire and it involves the owner of the Cleveland Browns, that's a real big problem for the ownership, and especially for this city, which still has scars from when Art Modell 
you know, up and packed the team away and they moved to Baltimore. That was tricky. But it's, it hasn't been really a big problem for me um, as far as, you know, what I say on TV and, and then doing the game on the radio. It is now in – We're getting in, guys to do, do players yeah. still talk to you the same oh, way? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, and the structure of it is, is really tricky too. I mean, I mean, I work for the Browns. I mean, the Brown, I don't work for a radio station. I work for the Browns. Uh, when I'm doing their broadcasts, and obviously I work at the television station. That's, uh, you know, people could say definition of conflict of interest, but, uh, you know, it's worked out well. But the only time it got tricky was when really it was an off-the-field matter more than it was an on-the-field matter. Jim, if people want to uh, follow the Cleveland Browns or find you on social media or, or whatnot, uh, how do they track you down? Well, you just follow me at clevelandbrowns.com. That would probably be the best way. Jim, appreciate the time. Uh, this was fun, so thank you for uh, taking a flyer on me uh, coming on down here and, and sitting down and, and chatting for a bit. It was great. Great to talk to you. Great to meet you. Fascinating to hear that conversation from a couple of different angles. The, the feedback systems that NBC had for its broadcasters when it had the NFL rights on, on uh, the AFC games. For Marty Glickman to call you and, hey, here's what went well, here's what didn't go well. What a built-in feedback system. That's kind of awesome. I did not know that. Uh, so it was neat to get that kind of insight to what it's like being a national voice of the NFL. Uh, many thanks to Jim Donovan uh, for, for uh, taking some time, 40, 45 minutes to sit down, share that kind of knowledge with us. Um, and hopefully, as we said at the end, uh, he will get the opportunity, uh, like Gil Santos, to uh, go through some troublesome years uh, with his team in the NFL and then eventually um, get back to a Super Bowl or a championship level uh, where he can have some some good years here with the Cleveland Browns. And, I, you know, he said it. I, I think the league is better when the Browns are better. It's just one of those things. They're a historic franchise, and uh, and hopefully they figure things out, and it, uh, it'll be a little bit more fun to him uh, for him to call those games. Uh, good advice, though, by the way, at the end, when it comes to calling games of uh, struggling teams. You know, just call the game. Call what you see. Talk about physically the plays that are in front of you don't get caught up in the fact that your team's losing or getting blown out uh just enjoy the fact uh about what you're seeing play by play why is this good why is that not good where can that get improved and i think that if you use that mentality man is it probably easier to get through the drudgery of a difficult season when you just take each play for what it is so i thought that was some good advice from Jim Donovan as well. But again, many thanks to him for joining us. Many thanks to you for the subscription or the download and the listen, the rating or review if you get an opportunity on iTunes to throw a couple of stars our way. Uh, that would be much appreciated as well. Until next Friday morning when the NCAA tournament will be in full swing, this is Play by Playcast, and we are out. See you.